Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I just have one announcement. Um, you know, we had announced last week that we would have a, a lunch for newcomers. Um, for various reasons, that's been canceled. Um, just so uh, if you were thinking about that, that's just canceled this morning. Um, that was my announcement. I, I want to share with you now a quote, which is probably my, my most favorite non-biblical quote of all time. It comes from the pen of A.W. Tozer. Maybe some of you have heard this before. If so, it's so good it bears repeating. It bears even memorizing, if so. Tozer writes this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me just say that again. Because you've all heard it before. It bears repeating. You can hear it again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Tozer continues, he says, Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, What comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. In other words, Tozer claims this, is if we could be a, a, a surgeon extraordinaire who could, who could crack into your skull, who could delve into the recesses of your minds, who could decipher the neurological impulses of your brain and, and, and put on a, a screen of some type the images that come to mind when we ask you the question, when you think about God, what do you think about were we to be able to see what goes on in your mind, Tozer claims that we would surely be able to predict with accuracy the spiritual future that lays before you. It goes like this. If your view of God is that of the deists who believe that God created the world and set it into motion but is really today inactive in our lives, well, then you will have very little interest in God as well. As God has played laissez-faire with us, we will play laissez-faire with Him. If your view of God is that of a, a grandfather who's all about love, is just big smiles with big open arms, willing to accept you regardless of what you do, well, then you have really very little incentive to walk in His ways. He really doesn't care how you walk, so you won't care how you walk because you believe you'll be accepted. If your view of God is that of a reigning tyrant, ready to punish any evil that you do, then you will live your lives in total fear upon the earth, dreading the judgment that's coming before you. And not only will you fear His judgment, but you also will be highly judgmental upon others. But if your view of God is that of the Bible holy and pure, but yet gracious and forgiving through the blood of Christ, then you'll have a desire to respond to live an obedient, pure, holy life, knowing God's love for you in Christ, absolutely secure, but desiring His, his child to please Him with all of your being. The principle is really this. You'll be like your God in many ways. The way you act is dependent upon your view of God and that's the principle of our text this morning. 1 Peter 1, verse 16. Though we're going to look at just one verse, I want to catch the context. Verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Contained in these words are a call to holiness, a call to purity, a call to a righteous life. Verse 14 is the negative side of that command. Don't be conformed to your former lusts. And verse 15 is the positive command. Be holy in all your behavior. And verse 16 gives the reason for this. Because... I am holy, declares the Lord. In other words, we're to be holy because God is holy. We are to be like our God. He's holy, therefore we are to be holy. Peter quotes here the Old Testament. 
In fact, three times in the Old Testament are these exact words contained. All three of them occur in the book of Leviticus. In every instance, the context is exactly identical to the context here in 1 Peter. You're not to be like those around you who live in their sin. Rather, you're called to be different. You're called to be a holy people set apart for me. You're to be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that's what God speaks about in Leviticus. He's pulling a people out of Egypt and saying, you are a distinct nation and you need to live differently. Let me give you my laws of how it is you ought to live differently. And that's what Peter says here this morning. Based upon what we've been pulled out of, based upon the fact that we are now the people of God, we need to live holy lives because He is holy. Now, this morning we could easily zoom past this verse and continue our exposition with verse 17. But, you know, I really feel the need for us to just stop here with this one verse and linger for another week. Next week we'll get on to verse 17. And the reason I think I feel strongly about this is probably has to do with my own walk with the Lord. See, I grew up in a church that had what you might call a a low view of God. By that, I simply mean that there was very little true biblical understanding of who God was. That I read for you this morning, Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. Um, that just wasn't presented in the church that I grew up in. Very little emphasis placed upon the holiness of God. As a result, I think the lives of the people were different. And then by the grace of God, God led me to a place that you might say had a high view of God. The holiness of God was front and center in this church. It's called Grace Church of DuPage in Warrenville, Illinois. I thank the Lord for that church. And I remember going to that church for the first time in my life, being confronted by the awesome character of God. And the implications upon my life were incredible. And, you know, really it was no accident that um, such was the case. That when I went to that church, I I was struck by the holiness of God. Because shortly after I attended this church, they they, uh, built an auditorium and dedicated this auditorium. And the the elders of the church wrote a letter to the future members of the church, placed this letter in a a cornerstone of the church to be opened someday and be read by future members of the church. And I think it was about three years ago that they broke open this uh, cornerstone and read this letter. I got a copy of this letter. It was dated November 5th, 1989. That was right about the time when I started going to that church. And uh, this is how the church was was founded. The, The elders said this, To the future members of Grace Church of DuPage, This letter is being written in concert with the dedication of this auditorium. We are using this dedication service as an opportunity to reaffirm our commitment as a congregation to the purpose for which the Lord has raised up this church. The purpose of Grace Church is to reveal the holy character and caring heart of God to a perishing world and in obedience to be led by the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our most earnest desire and prayer that the future generations of Grace Church will seek to maintain this purpose and thereby honor the Lord and His Word. Therefore, whenever or for whatever reason this cornerstone is opened, may the reading of this letter cause the church to pause and ask yourself this question. Are we fulfilling the purpose for which God raised up this church? If indeed you as a congregation have strayed from the very purpose for which God has established Grace Church, then may you respond as Isaiah did in Ezra 9 verse 10. And now our God what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy, forsaken thy commands. And may you take heed to the words of our Lord. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Revelation 2.5 As you seek in your generation to reveal the holy character and caring heart of God to a perishing world, may God continue His rich blessing upon this church, the elders of Grace Church, November 5th, 1989. Grace Church was raised up to reveal the holy character and caring heart of God to a perishing world. You know, in my church upbringing, I knew much about attempting to reveal the caring heart of God to a perishing world. 
but I knew very little what it meant to reveal the holy character of God. And when I came to the church and saw the holy character of God, it it, it totally changed the way I I viewed God. It changed the way I viewed worship. It changed the way I reviewed reviewed the church. It changed the way I viewed my life. It changed the way I viewed my own sin. It, It changed the way how I should show a caring heart of God to a perishing world. See, for the first time in my life, I saw the supremacy of God and longed to live for His glory. A few years later, I read a book um, by R.C. Sproul. I think I got it here. We have it on our back table here called The Holiness of God. I don't even read this book. It's a, it's a great book that just speaks, seeks to lift up God and to show how awesome He is. And that book really helps solidify a lot of these things in my mind. And so for that reason, I think it's good for us here to linger on verse 16. I think there's another reason is because the church... Across America needs to understand this. I think there are many churches that don't. Many churches have a low view of God. And again, I quote A.W. Tozer. He said this. He said, Christians today appear to know Christ only after the flesh. They try to achieve communion with Him by divesting Him of His burning holiness and unapproachable majesty. The very attributes He veiled while on earth but assumed in fullness of glory upon his ascension to the Father's right hand. The Christ of popular Christianity has a weak smile and halo. He has become someone up there who likes people, at least some people, and these are grateful, but fundamentally not too impressed. Well, the aim of my message this morning is to do what I can do to rid your mind of a wrong view of God. Because a wrong view of God has a devastating effect upon the way you live will have a devastating effect upon the future of Rock Valley Bible Church. And so I want to just linger here in um, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, and, and really not, not, look, not look here, but I want us to bounce this morning to Isaiah chapter 6. You can turn there. Isaiah chapter 6 will be here the rest of our time this morning. Perhaps it's a familiar passage of Scripture to you. If it is, I just say praise God because it has helped many down through the ages and it will help you with your walk of God. With God, If this isn't familiar with you, like it wasn't familiar with me when I stepped into Grace Church of DuPage, then may the Lord use it in your life so as to see God for who He is. Well, I've chosen these verses here in Isaiah 6 because they give a good picture of the holiness of God In fact, it's probably the best picture we see of this anywhere in Scripture. It describes the throne of God. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Here in Isaiah 6, we see the commissioning of Isaiah. It's a time in which God called Isaiah to be a a preacher and a prophet. You see in verse 8, he's willing to go. And God gives him his commissioning charge in verses 9 through 13. A fruitless ministry was his charge. Well, according to the very first verse in Isaiah, we see Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of four kings. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, when you look at these kings, they span about a hundred years. Isaiah wasn't that old. He caught his, his reign here at the end of Uzziah's reign. In fact, it says here at the year of King Uzziah's death is when he was commissioned to send. We don't know whether this is before Uzziah died or whether it was after he died, but it was somewhere 
when he died, near the time when he died. This, by historical records, happened in 639 B.C. Second Chronicles chapter 26 tells the story of Uzziah. He was one who met with great success, reigning 52 years in the kingdom of Judah. And uh, the kingdom of Judah became strong. In fact, it was so strong that Uzziah's heart was proud and he acted corruptly. As a king, he was forbidden to go where the priests go. But in his pride and arrogance, he thought he could do anything and went into the Holy of Holies, offered up the incense, the altar of incense. And as soon as he offered it up, right then and there, God struck him with leprosy. It was the very last time he was allowed in the temple. The priests and he himself were ushered out of the temple to spend the last 11 years of his life in relative obscurity. Well, his son Jotham reigned there in his place. And as Isaiah grew up, probably the only thing that he knew of Uzziah was the sickly old Uzziah who lived off by himself in the leper colony. Oh, certainly Isaiah had heard about how God had prospered this great king. But he didn't know them personally. It's a little bit like you parents maybe telling your your kids about the Reagan years. Oh, the days of Ronald Reagan. They were the days. Ronald Reagan was a great leader. Our military strength then was at its greatest. Our economy boomed. It was the end of the Cold War Reagan brought in. Those were great times. And maybe Isaiah placed Isaiah's father placed Isaiah upon his lap and told him how in the days of Uzziah, there was none to compare with Uzziah. He destroyed the Philistines. The Ammonites were subdued under his hand. He built towers in Jerusalem. He dug cisterns to accommodate the many livestock. There was no lack of food as the fields flourished. He had a strong army, 300,000 men, all well-armed with helmets and bows and body armor and sling stones and shields and spears. Under his reign, we invented new weapons that could shoot arrows farther than ever before, that could catapult rocks further than ever before, and his fame extended far beyond Judah. Oh, Isaiah, you should have seen the king of Uzziah in its glory days. But Uzziah of Isaiah's days had wasted away, much like the life of Ronald Reagan, who spent the last decade of his life in obscurity as he suffered from Alzheimer's. That was King Uzziah. And when King Uzziah died, this young man, Isaiah, received his revelation from God. In fact, it was more than a revelation from God. It was a revelation of God it was a revelation of God in heaven. Now, I know I didn't uh, get my outline for you in my notes this morning, but I do have an outline. Here's my first point. The demonstration of God's holiness. If you want to take notes, the demonstration of God's holiness comes there in verses 1 and 2. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of His robe filling the temple. What has immediately struck me was the, the contrast between Uzziah, the earthly king, dying of leprosy, and God, the eternal king, high and lofty and exalted in heaven, still reigning. Where once Uzziah was strong, now he was weak. But God has always been strong. He is lofty and exalted, strong and mighty as ever. Now, should you trace this throne room scene throughout all the Scripture, you'll find that God still today is on His throne, lofty and exalted. As you read in Revelation chapter 4, God will always be on His throne, lofty and exalted. Just as God reigned in the days of Isaiah, God is still on His throne today. And God will be on His throne forever. God buries every king. Uzziah reigned 52 years in Judah, but his reign wasn't as long as God's reign. Psalm 93 verse 2 says, Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. God's reign is throughout all eternity, and no king will ever be as great as our king, the Lord of lords, the God of gods. That's why he's called the Lord of lords. That's why he's called the King of kings. God is reigning upon his throne. Psalm 93 verse 1 begins, The Lord reigns. 
He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. And as Psalm 93 spoke about the clothing of God, so also does Isaiah 6 speak about his clothing. Speaks here about the train of his robe. And we see this train of his robe filling the temple. Now in our days and age, we don't have kings who sit upon thrones with long robes of trains for our leaders. But we do have trains for our wedding dresses. I'm sure that many of you women wore a long dress on your wedding day. Your dress was long, had a train behind it. Typically, a wedding dress might have a train a couple feet long that drags behind it. You know, I've seen enough weddings that uh, I know we take great care of the train. You know, before the bride walks down, we roll out this um, paper upon which she can walk so as not to dirty the train. She stands there before the the front of the altar with her groom husband-to-be. And when she walks up the steps, oftentimes I've seen the maid of honor give her flowers to uh, another bridesmaid and then address her, her train so it's all just perfectly seated and saturated there. We take great honor in the train of, of uh, wedding dresses. And this week I, I discovered that um, Princess Diana had a dress with a train when she was married in 1981. I think it was 800,000 people, London gathered, worldwide audience. And her train of her robe was 25 feet long. I saw pictures of her walking into the cathedral. I forget which cathedral it was, but it just way behind her, 25 feet. But I guarantee you that the robe here in Isaiah's vision was longer than 25 feet. 25 feet is long by earthly standards. And it showed that Diana was something special, marrying the Prince Charles heir to the king of England and she was on track to be queen for she deserved the robe that big but the robe of God filled the temple the fabric of God's robe flows off his throne buckles and rolls pleated back and forth filling the throne filling the temple now we don't know exactly what that means that it filled the temple because the temple filled with smoke also so it may be that the throne of the robe of God's The train of God's robe went all the way around, covered every square inch of the entire temple area. Maybe it went up the walls a little bit. Maybe it was three feet high in the temple. Such speaks of the majesty of God. It's the prominence of His robe declares His greatness. The fact that His robe filled the temple meant that there was no room for anyone to come into His presence to stand on the floor just as none of the bridesmaids stand on the train of a wedding dress, so also no one stands on the robe of a king. And no one can come into the temple. You can only approach God from a distance. That is, unless you're flying. You can fly above the robe, and indeed that's what we see. We see some creatures here, some strange creatures, which are able to fly in the presence of God. Verse 2, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. These are like heavenly hummingbirds around the throne. Now, when the Lord creates his beings, he creates us exactly as they were intended to be created. God creates our eyes so we can see. He creates our ears so we can hear. He gives us two eyes so we can see with perspective. He gives us two ears so we can hear with direction. He gives us noses so we can smell. He gives us mouths so we can eat. He gives us taste buds so we can taste. He gives us legs so we can walk. Two legs so we can walk. Otherwise, we'd hop around. God created our hands so we could feel and grab and move things. He's created opposable thumbs so we could grab things. Everything has its proper function. The one exception to this might possibly be the appendix. I mean, it is quite amazing, isn't it, that we have this one appendage organ in our body which scientists don't know what it's used for. It appears to be some useless part of the body. But it is interesting. Scientists study long and hard. What exactly is the appendix for? Because they know everything that God has created us to be is for a purpose. None of it lacks. 
And so we're puzzled with this appendix. Well, these seraphim are no different. God created these beings with six wings. And each of these wings had a purpose. Two of them were functional to get this being off the ground. And four of them were instructional. Two of these wings were used to fly so that they could be in God's presence off the floor. Four of these wings were used to teach us about what it means to be in God's presence. I, I believe that the, the wings that used to cover the eyes speak about the glory of God's appearance. He's so glorious that we ought to shield our eyes from Him. God dwells in unapproachable light. I think the two wings that used to cover the feet speak about the purity of God's presence. When Moses was in Midian... Seeing the burning bush, God says, take the sandals off your feet because the place in which you're standing is holy ground. There's a sense that we're just, we, need to, we need to be pure in His sight. So covering the feet and just protecting and guarding them. And I think they're coming with a purpose. Of all the creatures that God could have chosen to be around His throne, He chose these sinless beings who would fly around. I don't know how they flew with their eyes covered. Maybe they were like bats. They had their landing gear all up. They, maybe they never stopped flying. But He chose them because they teach us about what it means to enter the presence of God. God's glory is great. His purity is great. And, and listen, if sinless, angelic beings need to cover their face and cover their feet in the presence of God, how much more true of us coming into God's presence? God is high and exalted in the actions of those who come into His presence. Demonstrate this. Well, not only do these seraphim demonstrate the holiness of God with their wings, how pure and majestic and holy God is, they also declare it with their voices. This is my second point this morning, the declaration of God's holiness. It's come, verse 3 and 4, particularly here in verse 3. And one called out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. When we emphasize something in our language, we often use the word very. He is very tall. She is very talkative. And if we meet someone like Greg Christensen, we say he is very, very tall. And if we meet someone like, I'm not going to say, she's very, very talkative. Now, though Hebrew and Greek have the word very, Hebrew word is me'od, Greek word is leon, which means very. I don't know of any instance where they ever say meod, meod, very, very. They don't use it like that. In their language, in order to draw attention to something, rather than using a superlative like very, they repeated their words, right? Remember when Jesus was walking upon the earth and there were certain instances where it was really important? What did he say? He said, truly, truly I say to you. And when the disciples heard that, they should have said, Whoa, okay, something's coming, really important. Get our notepapers out. Get ready to write this down. And when these seraphim describe the essence of what God is like, they describe God as holy, holy, holy. That means that He is very, 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 very holy. In saying these words, these seraphim are making it clear that God isn't just holy. He's not just holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. It's the only time in the Bible that ever is a characteristic of God ever elevated to the third degree. Nowhere does the Bible say God is love, love, love. Though the Bible says God is love. He's not love three times. In 1 John 1, 5, we read that God is light, but never does the Bible say God is light, Light, light. First John 4, verse 24, we read that God is spirit, but the Bible never says God is spirit, spirit, spirit. You could add to that various other characteristics of God. It never says God is justice, 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 or God is mercy, mercy, mercy. Or God is faithful, faithful, faithful. And I believe this is intentional in the heart of God. When He wants to communicate the essential being of who He is, He says, He has these seraphim tell Him, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now the big question at this point is why? Why would these seraphim speak about the holiness of God? 
Why would God see fit to make sure that the single characteristic of Him that's exalted above all others would be His holiness? In fact, why would God throughout all eternity make sure these creatures continue this chant? Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Day and night, these creatures do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Well, ultimately, I'm not sure we'll exactly know why. But here's what I believe. I believe God's holiness is so lifted high of these creatures because it's the main thing that strikes you when you're in His presence. When someday you you die, you appear before the throne of God, you see Him for as He is, the one thing that's going to stand on your mind is that God is holy. You'd be awestruck at how different and distinct He is. He's the Creator. We're the creature. He's the one who receives the glory. We're the one who gives the glory. You'd be awestruck at His purity. As 1 John 5, 1, 5 says, that God is light in Him. is no darkness at all. God is absolutely pure. He's different. He's distinct from us. And you will be arrested by that. You will be captivated by that. That is the thing that will grab your attention. You know, there are certain people who become very memorable for you for some reason when you meet them. I remember as a young child growing up, um, some members of the church, there was a, a man there who was a former Harlem Globetrotter. And uh, you remember his name, right? What's his name? Deacon Davis, a not Rockford native. I think you know him, Phil Gusky, right? And uh, I remember shaking his hands on several occasions. Now, this guy, I'm telling you, his hands were like this long. And, and when he shook your hand, it roped all the way around your hand. And you went, wow, he's got... You know, it wasn't so they were big and thick. It was that they were long and slender and wrapped himself around that. In fact, probably that's why he was such an excellent basketball player. Deacon Davis is an example of someone who is very memorable. In fact, he just passed away a couple years ago. I think about three years ago. Went to school with his son, Randy. Should you meet an NBA basketball player? You'll go away from there, usually, saying, Wow, that guy is tall. Should you meet an Olympic weightlifter? You'll go away from his presence saying, Wow, that guy is strong. If you meet, go away from someone who had a patch on his eye, you go away wondering, Hmm, wonder why that guy's got a patch on his eye. Should you meet somebody and they speak with an accent? It becomes memorable. You say, Hmm, I wonder what country they're from. If you meet somebody who only has a, a few fingers on his hand, or maybe a withered hand, you say, I wonder what happened to him. Was that a birth? Was that an accident? And, and when you meet God, the one thing that will capture your attention immediately will be His holiness, absolutely pure in every way, entirely different than we are. When you stand before God, it's not a day of fun in the park. It's a terrifying day to stand before a holy God. In that day, you'll realize His great authority and power. In fact, look at verse 4. The foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. When God speaks, you hear, feel the earthquake tremors. So powerful is His voice. His glory is all-consuming. He says the whole earth is full of His glory. Right? Even today, the glory of God speaks in all of creation. We see that. But in that day, in some measure, it will be even more so when God is revealed for all to see. Because Isaiah saw it, and someday we will see it as well. And when you stand before God and realize His great holiness, verse 5 is how all of us will respond. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is our third point this morning. We've seen the demonstration of God's holiness, the declaration of God's holiness. Here is the devastation of God's holiness. Verse 5. And I love how this is put forth. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Various translations have translated the phrase differently. The ESV says, Woe is me, for I am lost. Eugene Peterson says in his paraphrase, It's doomsday, I am as good as dead. 
And I like the King James the best. says, woe is me, for I am undone. Everything in me is seeming to just wither and fall apart. Standing before God, I have weak knees. I can't think straight anymore. I see my sin and I'm, I'm broken. That's what Isaiah was dealing with here. He says, I'm ruined. He's explaining what that means. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah knew that he was a broken man standing before the holiness of God with no chance of surviving in his presence because of his sin. Now, it is insightful here to realize who it is who is saying this. Isaiah was a candidate for ministry. He was one who had a zeal for God and had a righteous life. His mouth wasn't filled with profanity. In fact, when Isaiah spoke, he spoke for God. Probably like the right, most righteous man in the land. I mean, you think of someone today, I mean, Billy Graham maybe comes to mind, right? One of the most prominent leaders. You think about someone else, someone else you really respect, some popular man known all across the land. Who is it? That was Isaiah. One of the most best examples of righteousness in a wicked land. And yet, when this righteous man compared himself to the holiness of God, he saw himself as undone. He saw himself as ruined. Why? Because, he says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Compared with God, Isaiah was ruined and undone. You know, the best comparison I give you this is a picture of an operating room. Uh, My father was a was a surgeon, is a surgeon. Once a surgeon, always a surgeon. What? What is it? Yeah? Once a surgeon. He is a surgeon. Okay? Retired. But uh, being raised in a surgeon's home, I know a bit about operating rooms. And on several occasions, I was able to scrub for surgery and assist him in surgery. And, you know, it wasn't a simple task. First of all, when we came, we would go to the locker room and we would take off our clothes and put on our scrubs. Specially clean clothes that had been cleaned and then brought right there that we could use. We put booties around our shoes. Having done that, then we went and gathered some things. And then we stood in front of this wash basin, I remember, and we washed our hands using soap and iodine, whatever, for like five minutes at least, scrubbing our fingernails and going like this and just scrubbing. And he's talking and I'm like, okay, are we done now? Kids, you guys need to really learn this. Five minutes, okay? Wash in your hands, and then you get them really clean and pure. And then, after we washed our hands, we went like this. Held our hands in the air. We didn't go like this, lest the the dirt come down onto our hands. We lifted our hands up like this. My dad's done this hundreds, thousands of times. Held our hands up like this. And I can't remember where the gloves came first or the gown came first. A gown first, okay? So we, we went like this, and then there was a nurse who specially unpacked this uh, package of stuff, and so we put our hands in the gown like this. And kind of, as I remember, kind of swung around, and she tied it for us in the back. So we, had, we were all like this, clean, all sterile. You know, this has all been sterilized. And then, and then gloves come out of the package and then given to us and placed on us so we don't contaminate them in any way. And so we have, we're gloves. We're all sterile all in the front. And if we stand around, we stand like this. Just kind of waiting for things to happen. And none of this stuff. Okay, we're like this because we have to be sterile and clean. And then in the surgery, we're very careful not to touch anything that wasn't sterile. Walking around being very careful, you know, we back in if you had to do something and get in. And everything was in a sterile environment. Listen, you can't just walk off the street and go into a, an operating room. If you want to present, prevent disease, you need to prepare by changing your clothes and by purifying yourself to come into the presence of the operating room. And so it is when you come into God's presence. You can't just walk off the street into His presence. It doesn't work that way. Listen, even if you just took a shower and just put on clean clothes, you still can't enter a surgical room. You need to be sterile. So it is with God, even if you're clean and living a righteous life like Isaiah did. It wasn't good enough. Isaiah may have been clean. It wasn't clean enough. You need to be sterile to come into God's presence. And compared with God, Isaiah was ruined and undone. Seeing God. 
Listen, this is God. I mean, all of us have this view and understanding of Him. Should the passage end here in verse 5, we'd be left to despair. But we aren't because the story continues on, and I love what happens next. We see it in verses 6 and 7. My fourth point this morning, the deliverance from God's holiness. The deliverance from God's holiness. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. At that moment, Isaiah experienced the forgiveness of sins. You know, this is the wonderful thing about God. Though He understands how nobody can stand in the presence, in His presence because of their sin, He also provides the way of forgiveness. In this instance, it's one of the seraphim had taken some tongs and fished out a burning coal from the altar. And he took that coal and he touched it to the lips of Isaiah, the very place in which Isaiah confessed his uncleanness. And he pronounced Isaiah's dirty mouth clean. The hot coal seemingly burned away Isaiah's sin. He's forgiven, wiped clean, and he could go from that place with a clean conscience in purity into the presence of God, not because he had lived righteously, but because his sin was forgiven. In my, my fourth point, I, I have worded very carefully. Right? I call it, let's get it right here, the deliverance from God's holiness. The deliverance from God's holiness. You see, because when you're in the presence of God, your greatest need is to be delivered from God. R.C. Sproul wrote a book one time entitled, Saved from What? Question mark. The main premise of his book is that fundamentally we are saved from God. Saved from God consuming us in a moment. And he writes this, What every human being needs to be saved from sin is God. The last thing in the world the impenitent sinner ever wants to meet on the other side of the grave is God. But the glory of the gospel is that the one from whom we need to be saved is the very one who saves us. God is saving us. God, in saving us, saves us from Himself. And that's what's taking place here with Isaiah. God knew full well that Isaiah would be consumed in his sin apart from God's coming and purifying him. And God knows full well our predicament in sin as well. He knows that we need a Savior to cleanse us from our sin. And He's provided a Savior for us in Jesus Christ. A man who hung on a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. Although he was sinless, a God-man come in the flesh, he died as a criminal. And his death became, as it were, a substitute for us. It was his death for all who would believe. He took our sin that we might receive his righteousness. Because we need righteousness to be in God's presence. We need to be saved by God, from God. As A.W. Tozer said, we must take refuge from God in God. That's what's taking place here. That's what takes place for everyone who believes in Christ. We take refuge in the righteousness of Christ from the wrath of God which is due upon us. But listen, the only way you can actually realize and experience this forgiveness is if you come to the point like Isaiah, broken and dead and undone and ruined sin. So my question for all of you this morning is, have you come to the place in your life where you're undone? This is the true reality. Oh, it may be hidden because we don't see God in His full glory, but there will be a day when the the curtains are, are draped open and we see God who He is in His full glory. The solution is isn't to become undone then. It's to become undone now. Have you come to the place in your life where you're undone? I had an opportunity yesterday to ask this very question to a guy that I met. Through a series of circumstances, I had an opportunity to spend some time with this man. We are working on a project together for our, our children. We spent a few hours together. And in the course of our conversation, by God's grace, I had the opportunity to turn the conversation toward the things of the Lord. With Isaiah 6 on my mind, knowing I was going to preach it today, I just said, 
you know, start talking about things of the Lord, start telling him about Isaiah 6. And I, I told this man about Isaiah's encounter with God. I, I told him about how, how lofty and high and, and majestic and holy God is. That these beings are around the throne day and night saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And I told him how, how pure that means that, that God is. And I told him about how Isaiah, in standing before this righteous and holy God, was undone. The righteous man in the land, undone. And I told this man of the importance and coming to a place yourself to feel in your life that you're utterly helpless apart from God's help. It's only then that you'll see your sin and see your need of a Savior and cry out to Him. And so I asked this man, I said, exact same question I asked you. I said, well, have you come to a place in your life that you're undone before God? I said, have you come to realize that you have no hope before a holy almighty God from cleansing in yourself? And you know what this man said to me? He said, no. Not wanting to ruin the moment, I just was quiet for a little bit. And uh, he then replied. He says, you know what? I've always tried to live the best life that I could. He proceeded to tell me and explain ways in his life in which he is probably more righteous than a lot of people who go to church and then do bad business deals on the backside. So I... Okay, let's rewind this tape. And so I told him again about Isaiah. How in God's economy doesn't work that way. Isaiah is the most righteous in the land and it doesn't even come close to measuring up for holy God. And sadly, this man wasn't moved by my words. I can only pray that this man would see his need for a Savior. So I turn it back to you. Have you come to a place where you have been undone and ruined? Maybe today is that day. Because when we see the holiness of God, that ought to be our only response, ruin. And if you don't feel today, I am ruined, then you don't understand what I was saying. Bottom line. If today you can stand in your arrogance and self-sufficiency, <laughs> you don't understand of the, the demonstration of God's holiness and the declaration of God's holiness and the devastation of God's holiness. But if you have seen that, rejoice because it's in our ruin that we find that God has everything that we need to rebuild. As God cleanses us from our sin, then we are free to follow after Him in holy conduct. And that's how it works. See, we don't come here this morning to worship the Lord to get forgiven. We come here because we are forgiven. And there ought to be an eagerness and a zeal to serve the Lord. Isaiah's zeal was apparent in verse 8. When he heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah said, Well, here am I. Send me. He said, I'm willing. Whatever you call me to do, God, that's what I'll do. That's what his perspective. It's the response of all who are saved. Been cleansed and purified through the blood of Christ. Anyone who's in that circumstance ought to be willing to go anywhere and do anything the Lord calls us to do because he's dealt with the most fundamental problem that we have in the universe, to be forgiven before a holy God. Well, it's interesting what I, God called Isaiah to do. I mentioned this earlier, but he called him to a fruitless ministry. He said in verse 9, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, return and be healed. He says, you go and preach to them and make their hardened hearts even harder by lifting me up. They're not going to turn. They're not going to repent. That's your commission, Isaiah. Are you willing to go? Isaiah said, whatever, God. He says, I will go. But he says, that's a pretty hard ministry, Lord. How long? Because he understood. Verse 11. How long am I going to harden these people by preaching you and your righteousness? And he said, until the cities are devastated without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of a land. Yet, he does give him a, a promise. There will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning by purifying, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is the stump. In other words, I'm going to chop down the tree, the axe at the root of the tree. I'm going to chop it down, but there's going to be the stump, a remnant of those who believe your message. And Isaiah was willing to do that. God's, God purified him, and he went to follow. And God has called us to live a holy life. 
willing to follow that? That's God's commission on your life to live a holy life. At this point, we can come right back full circle to 1 Peter 1.16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Right? God is holy. He's telling us to be holy and reflect Him. And I know that the holiness of God and understanding it is the key to living a holy life herself. Well, the best as I've known, I've presented you a clear understanding of the holiness of God. And maybe you're here this morning and you've seen Him for the splendor of majesty for the first time. Maybe you've again seen Him and are broken again in your sin. Maybe you've been confronted by the sins of your mouth like Isaiah was. We don't have burning coals to cleanse you, but we do have something better, the blood of Christ. Simply look to Jesus. Trust Him and your sins will be wiped away. And then, having sins wiped away, trust Him to be holy and plead with Him to help you live a holy life. Let's pray. Lord, who is adequate to use words to speak of Your holiness? in many ways that we just ought to keep silent before you because you are an awesome God. Psalm 65 verse 1 says, There will be silence before you and praise in Zion, O God. Before you we are undone. We are not holy. And yet it's your very holiness very righteousness of Christ that cleanses us and purifies us from sin. So I pray you'd strengthen us individually, corporately as a body to live a holy life that's distinct from the world so when the world would see us they would catch a whiff of of what our God is like as we in some ways seek to model you by following after you and your holiness. Uh, So I pray this week, God, as we go about making choices of things to do, things to say, places to go, may your holiness ever be on our forefront and may it guard us away from those unholy places where we ought not to be, from doing those unholy things we ought not to do, from saying those unholy things we ought not to say. So guide us in the truth. I pray the holiness of God would be so much on our lips that we would be bold this week to speak it to people. As I've been thinking of Isaiah 6 this week and had the opportunity of this man, I was praying fervently to you. Lord, give me an opportunity. Give me an opportunity. Give me an opportunity. And I pray that we'd have opportunities this week to ask people whether they are undone, whether they've come to a place in their life that they're undone. Lord, that you'd be honored to use the message and maybe it might be like Isaiah, simply to harden sinners in their heart more. Or it might be used of you, Lord, to convert them. And in that, Lord, we would rejoice. We plead your strength in these things, God. We can't be holy in ourselves. You need to help us. I pray you'd help us to be a, a holy nation, a holy people, called out of darkness into light to proclaim his excellencies.